0: Church exists to shine as light in our homes, in our community, and in our world. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Well, if you would, please take out your Bibles and turn in them to the book of James in the New Testament. It's in the back part of the New Testament, James chapter 1. You don't have a Bible, there's one under a chair in front of you, and you can take that Bible and turn to page 178 in the back part, and you would be at James chapter 1. You know, every year there are tens of thousands of people who suffer injuries from falls. And one reason that is so common is that there are hazards everywhere. This week I was doing a little bit of research And I came across this. It said some of the common causes of slips and trips that we may experience. I'm going to share with you three of them. First cause, messy, cluttered areas. Second one, poor visibility, inadequate lighting. And then the third common cause, running or walking too fast. You have these trip hazards everywhere. And if you work in a commercial environment often they will put up signs, and those signs are there to warn you that there are trip hazards out there. Now, when I think about these common causes of trips and slips, I have to laugh. You know, the messy, cluttered areas, the poor visibility, the inadequate lighting, and the running and walking too fast. The reason why I laugh is the three greatest trips and falls I've ever had in my life were caused by each one of those three common causes. And I want to just share with you uh, the, the greatest trip and fall that I ever had. It came in a time when my father-in-law was at my home and he was doing some concrete work in the backyard. And uh, I was busy doing some other things, but I came by and I noticed that he was washing out his buckets and his implements uh, in the back part of the driveway and there was this thick slime that was going down the drive. And I had an appointment I needed to go to and I said to him, don't you think that could be dangerous? Well, he was so into his project, he ignored the fact that maybe that slime ought to be washed down out of the driveway. Well, I had parked my car in the front part of the driveway and I knew in order to get in my car now, I was going to have to go through the slime. And so I tried to be careful. But as I opened my car door and planted my foot, I slipped, I flipped up into the air parallel to the ground. The corner of the car door found the bottom of my chin, and then I slammed to the concrete. Hardest fall I've ever taken. And I became black and blue all the way up my entire body on one side, about a six-foot-wide black and blue mark all the way up and down. And that was a trip or a slip caused by a messy, cluttered work area. And there are common trip hazards also in our spiritual life. And we need to be warned about them. You know that tens of thousands of believers experience spiritual trips and slips every week, and what I want to do for the next few weeks is focus on two common trip hazards that tend to trip us up in our spiritual life, and I have entitled this series, Dealing with the Double T's, and the Double T's are Temptation and the Tongue. Those are two common trip hazards that will tend to cause us to make a little fall in our spiritual life. We're going to spend a couple of weeks on the hazard of temptation, and then we're going to spend three weeks on the hazard of the tongue. And we're going to the book of James in order to look at these trip hazards. And I want to remind you that the book of James is a book that emphasizes Living the Practical Christian Life. It's a book whose theme basically is how to be fruitful in our spiritual walk. And the first trip hazard we're going to look at is the trip hazard of temptation. Temptation is something that we all tangle with. We experience it weekly, daily, hourly. One of my favorite little comic strips is the comic strip... Frank and Ernest, and in this one particular strip, Frank and Ernest are standing before a priest, and Frank asks the priest this question, how come opportunity knocks once, but temptation beats at my door every day? What a great question that just summarizes so much about temptation. We have to face it on a regular basis. And when we are not alert to temptation, when we're not intentional about temptation, guess what? We end up being very vulnerable to a spiritual trip or slip. Now, if you have your Bible open to James 1, I want to read verses 13 to 16 and invite you to follow along in your Bible as I'm reading Notice what James writes to us. He says, "'Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin.' And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Now, part of what we want to do when we look at this trip hazard of temptation is first we want to understand temptation. We want to have a better grip on it theologically. And then we want to look at how to respond properly, how to handle it better. Because actually, both things are vital to spiritual success. We need to understand this dimension of temptation and we need to know how to best handle it and how to best respond to it. So here's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at three things today. First of all, we're going to look at a primer on temptation. Then, secondly, we're going to look at the process pictured. And then thirdly, we're going to look at a warning. All of this is found in these verses we read this morning. A primer on temptation, the process pictured, and then a warning. And what we're going to do for the next few moments is expand our theological understanding. We're going to look more carefully at this theology of temptation. Temptation. And so we want to begin by looking at a primer on temptation. You know, a primer gives us the basic elements. And so as we get a better handle on the theology of temptation, we want to look at the basic elements. So look with me again at verse 13. James writes, let no one say, and then here's the key word, when he is tempted. See, it's not a matter of if, it's when it happens. This is a true trip hazard for your life and mine. It's a universal experience that we all have. In fact, when you take your first breath as a human being, you are inaugurated into a lifelong confrontation with temptation. And yet sometimes people don't fully believe that. There seems to be this idea out there in the Christian community That there's a certain plateau that you can reach, sort of this spiritual plane. And if you can just grow to that point, then from there on you are immune to temptation. I don't know where that comes from, but it seems to be floating around out there. That somehow I can reach a place spiritually that when I get there, I can finally relax. And the truth is that's totally untrue. You can't relax about temptation, not while you're in this body, not while we are in this world. And so whether you are a new follower of Jesus Christ or a seasoned follower of Christ of multiple decades, it's important that we understand the basic theology of temptation. Now, there's something unusual in verse 13. I wondered if you noticed it when we read it. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. Now, ask yourself the question, why does he even have to say this? Why does he say, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God? I mean, why does he feel the necessity to even bring that up? even mention that? Well, I think there's at least two reasons. The first reason relates to the day in which James lived, the era in which we had the Greek and the Roman pagan gods. And if you know much about the Greek and the Roman pagan gods, you will know that part of the saga of the gods, the the gods of the day, is that many of them succumb to temptations to various temptations of immorality, especially sexual immorality. It was not uncommon for those pagan gods to have been participants in sexual immorality and other levels of immorality. And what would often happen in the traditions about these gods is the gods would then turn and they would tempt you. They would provoke men and women into the same kind of sin that they had been tempted with and that they had succumbed to. So, with that kind of a pagan background, he felt it important to say, let no one say I'm being tempted by God. I think that's part of the reason why he brings that up. But I think there's a second reason that is maybe something more that we're all familiar with, and that is that we have an innate tendency to pass blame. From a very, very young age, we have this innate tendency to pass blame. Will Rogers, the great observer of humanity, the folk hero of Oklahoma, said this, there are two eras in American history. You have the passing of the buffalo, and then you have the passing of the buck. And how true that is. He's captured our humanity because we have this innate tendency to pass blame. We have this tendency to point the finger elsewhere. Think back to the book of beginnings, in the book of Genesis in chapter 3. Think back to Adam and Eve. And you remember they were tempted and then they chose to sin. And you remember God comes to Eve and he says to Eve, what is this that you have done? you remember the words out of her mouth? Well, the serpent... You see, we have this innate tendency to point our finger elsewhere and to pass the blame. And then Adam, you know, the great spiritual leader that he was, God comes to Adam and says, basically, what's going on, Adam? Remember what Adam says? Well, the woman that you gave me, I didn't even ask for. It's really your fault, God. Ultimately, it was her that was responsible. We have this innate tendency to pass the blame. Oh, I remember it well. I have two younger sisters. Oh, it definitely happened there. I remember it happening with my kids. We have four children. We had three relatively close to one another. I can remember it happening. Now I can see it happening with my grandchildren. You know the scenario. You're driving in the car, and the kids are in the back seat of the car. And you know what's happening? They're fussing at each other, you know, gigging one another on. And if you're lucky enough that both parents are there, you can have maybe the mother turn around when the dad's driving and she says to the kids, stop it. I want you to keep to yourselves. And then it gets quiet for about a mile. And then you notice what happens? It re-erupts. She touched me first. No, he touched me first. Rah, rah. You know, we just have this tendency, even at a young age, to pass the blame. And it's amazing how, even as we grow up to be older, we still do that. I had such a difficult teacher. I mean, I had to cheat in order to get the grade. It wasn't my fault. They drove me to do it. I even had one person tell me this one time. I'm just a lusty guy. God made me that way. And sometimes we actually develop this attitude. This fascinates me. That God is sovereign. And so it must be okay with him because I have these strong feelings that tell me I ought to do this, and why else would he, he's sovereign, allow me to feel this way? Again, we just have this innate tendency to pass the blame. And so, James says, it's important that we understand that the primary source of temptation is not God. It's not God. In fact, he gives two reasons why It's not God. The first one is that his character precludes it. Notice verse 13. God cannot be tempted by evil. In 1 John 1.5, it says that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. His character precludes it. His character, the theological word, is impeccable. He is faultless. He is totally uncontaminated. Now, if you're really a a spiritual thinker, you might be thinking about Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15, where it says that Jesus was our high priest, and he was tempted in all things as we. And the writer to the Hebrews brings that up to us as a comfort to us. You know, he understands. But you might be thinking, wait a minute, now I don't get how all that works together. His character is impeccable, faultless. He is uncontaminated. He cannot be tempted by evil, but I'm supposed to be somewhat comforted by the fact that Jesus was tempted? I mean, how does that work? His character precludes that he could sin, so how comforting is it that he was tempted in all things as I? Well, let me illustrate it to you this way. You have to use your imagination because we're not near an ocean here. But I want you to think of temptation as waves in the sea, okay? Waves in the sea are temptation. We are a small rock. Now, a small rock might resist a small wave, but a big wave will sweep away a small rock. So you have the analogy temptation of the waves of the sea, we're a small rock. Jesus is the rock of Gibraltar. And he experienced not only the small waves and not only the big waves, he experienced the full rage of temptation. He experienced the full fury of temptation. And even though his character precluded him giving in to temptation... Whatever you ever experience in your life, believe me, he has experienced that and more. Therefore, he can sympathize with the pressure that comes. The primary source of temptation is not God, James says, and there's two reasons he says that. Number one, his character precludes it, and number two, his activity excludes it. You see what it says there in verse 13? He himself tempts no one. So you can count on it. I can count on it. God will never lead us to commit sin. So remember, we're we're just getting some theology here about temptation. This is a, a primer on temptation. The primary source of temptation is not God. In fact, the primary source of temptation is not Satan, although he will hurl temptations at us. The primary source of temptation is our sinful heart. Notice verse 14, it says, But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Now, that word that's translated lust, because lust has certain connotations to us, is basically just the word for impulse or desires. And I think if you have an NIV or an ESV translation, it will choose to translate the word in that way, by desire or impulses. And I prefer that translation rather than the translation here of lust. He is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own impulses or his own desires. You know, Jesus made an amazing statement in this regard in Mark chapter 7, verses 21 to 23. Quite a statement that Jesus makes. He says that from within, out of a person's heart come evil thoughts and sexual immorality and look at this list, theft and murder and adultery and greed and wickedness and deceit and eagerness for lustful pleasure and envy and slander and pride and foolishness, and all these things, Jesus said, all these vile things come from within. They are what defile you. See, what it really means is we can't get away with blaming God. We can't blame our parents. We can't blame the devil. We can't blame everybody else. We can't blame the circumstances. The primary source is our own sinful heart. Now, I want to make a couple of observations about this area of temptation as we try to get a grip on some theology about it. And the first observation is this, and this is really important to understand, I think, and that is that it is not a sin to be tempted. It is not a sin to be tempted. Remember, Jesus was tempted in all things, and yet without sin. The reason why I think it's important to understand that is sometimes we hit the panic button when a temptation is hurled at us. And suddenly we kind of get, oh, my goodness, my goodness. No, it's not a sin to be tempted. Second observation I want to make is that sin is a process, and temptation is the first step. And if you go back to James 1 and you look at verse 14, what he uses in this verse are a lot of fishing terms. There's fishing terminology being used. He says, notice, look, verse 14, but each one is tempted when he is carried away. I think the ESV translates that verb, lured. It's a term that was used of the technique that someone would employ to draw a fish away from its place of safety. That's really ultimately what fishing is because fish like to seek a place of safety and what we try to do is to lure them away from their place of safety. And so that's what temptation does to us. Temptation seeks to lure us from our place of safety, from our dependence on the Holy Spirit of God who lives inside of us, from our dependence and reliance on God himself. Temptation comes along and wants to lure us away from our place of safety. And then in verse 14, it goes on to say, each one is tempted when he is lured away and enticed by his own desire. This word that is translated here, enticed, just comes from the basic word in the original for fish bait. In other words, there's little bait that is dangled in front of us. Temptation allures us with a certain promise or suggestion. Think back to Eve in Genesis chapter 3. Think about what happened. The first part of the temptation that came to her is she was being lured from her trust in God. Did God really say that? I mean, are you really sure Is God really good? I don't really think so. She was being lured from her trust in God, and then some bait was dangled in front of her. You remember the story? Remember what the bait was? You do this, and you'll be like God. One of my favorite writers is Don Anderson, and he has said this. He said that temptation involves three elements. I want to give them to you. The first element is the suggestion of pleasure. You ought to do this because it'll be fun. I mean, you need to live a little bit. I mean, you deserve to enjoy yourself. You see, that suggestion of pleasure is what really fuels people to embezzle money. You deserve to have those things. You ought to get a hold of this so you can have those things. Go for it. Get it while you can. It'll be worth it. See, that's what people are thinking about when they're stealing money. The first element is the element of the suggestion of pleasure. The second element is this element, that you can get away with it. No one's really going to find out. No one's going to know you're not going to get caught. I mean, Think again about people embezzling. You think they're thinking they're going to get caught? No, they're buying into the idea you can get away with it. Just this once won't hurt. And then you have the suggestion of pleasure, the, the idea of you can get away with it. Then the third element is you will escape the consequences oh, sure, there could be consequences, but you're going to come out of this unscathed? You and other people will will be unhurt by it all? It's not going to happen? I can't tell you how many pastors I've known over the years who succumbed to temptation. And it's this third element that they bought into. You're going to escape the consequences. You're going to come out unscathed? Nothing could be further from the truth. And while when we succumb to temptation, there can be pleasure involved there, it's later on. Think about the last time you succumbed to temptation. Later on, we realize, you know, it really wasn't worth it. It's only later on that we experience the damaged reputation. It's only later on that we have an undermined spiritual heart. It's only later on that we find out there are wounded hearts and there are broken relationships. It's only later on that it becomes an addiction. It's only later on that we experience the emptiness that that brings in our life. Donald Barnhouse had a great quote about temptation. He said this, victory is won in the citadel of the mind. You say, why are we going through all of this basic theology, because we have to have it up here because that's where victory is won, in the citadel of the mind. See, men and women and young people, that's why it's so important what we watch. That's why it's so important what we read. It's why it's so important what we listen to. It's why it's so important what we ponder and roll over again in our head. We need to think clearly. We need to think biblically, because victory is won with temptation in the citadel of the mind. Now, we said we were going to do three things today. The first thing was we were going to do a primer on temptation. We've given you a lot of good theology, the basic elements of temptation. But the second thing we want to do is we want to look at the process of temptation pictured in verse 15. Now, while in verse 14, he uses a lot of fishing terminology In verse 15, he's going to shift, and he's going to use childbirth terminology. Notice verse 15. He says, but when lust or desire or impulses have conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Now, remember, temptation is not sin. So when does sin happen? Well, sin occurs when we choose to begin to pursue the temptation, when we choose to entertain the temptation. Martin Luther had a great way of summarizing this idea when he said this. He said, you cannot keep birds from flying overhead. Same thing with temptation. You can't keep temptations from whizzing past you. You can't keep birds from flying overhead, but you can keep them from nesting in your hair. Man, that is a great way of summarizing the issue of temptation. You can't help but that temptations are going to fly overhead. But what you want to do is not allow that temptation to nest in your hair. That's when it begins to become sin. Notice he says... There in the verse, when lust has conceived, when desire and impulse has conceived, it gives birth to sin. You see, when the conceiving process takes place is when we take the second deeper look at the member of the opposite sex. See, when you're walking around and you notice that someone is very attractive There may be a certain temptation there. That's not sin in and of itself. It's when we go back for that second deeper look. You see, you may be working on your income taxes and you may have a thought go through your mind, if I just move some of these numbers around, cheat just a little bit, you know, I could save some money on my taxes. I could get more money back. That thought is the temptation when does sin begin to be conceived when we entertain that a little bit? We think, you know what, that's... I wonder if I could get away with that. And you begin to just churn that over in your mind. See, desire, impulse becomes conceived when we begin to rationalize. And we may see a certain movie that's out there and we think, I shouldn't really watch that movie, but you have that thought, well, maybe I should, or maybe I should go check out that site on the Internet. Just that temptation alone isn't the problem. It's when we begin to think our way through that. Well, I wonder if I should do that. Or, yeah, you know, I need to be informed. I need to know what's going on. I need to be up to speed and all. See, that's when things begin to be conceived. It happens when we coddle the curiosity of what the effects of that drug may be. See, we may have someone say, why don't you try this? That alone is just the temptation when we begin to coddle the curiosity. I wonder what that'll do. I wonder what that chemical substance would do. And we begin to think about that. Then you have the desire conceiving. And then you'll notice in verse 15, it finally gives birth to sin. And then when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. You know, death in all of the forms that we have. You have physical death. You have spiritual death. You have eternal death. All of them connect back to sin. What is he talking about here when he says, when it is accomplished, it brings forth death? Well, I think he could very well be talking about physical death. You know, the book of wisdom, the book of Proverbs says this in Proverbs ten twenty seven. It says, the years of the wicked will be shortened. That's a general truism in life. And then in Proverbs eleven nineteen, 19, it says, he who is steadfast in righteousness will attain to life. He who pursues evil will bring about his own death. So when he says, when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death, I mean, part of what he could have in mind here is the idea of physical death. It could actually shorten your life. But I think there's another idea that he has in mind here that is maybe even more pertinent. And that is, I think when he says here, when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death, death is a picture of the consequences that accompany sin. I really like the translation in the message here. It says this, when sin grows up, it becomes a real killer. You see, what happens in in temptation is alluring us and it's attracting us, but it's always hiding the consequences. Think about Adam and Eve. There was that allurement, that attraction, that little sales job that was going on, but hiding the consequences. You think about, in the Old Testament, David, King David with Bathsheba, and there was this allurement and this attraction, but it was hiding the consequences. Every temptation and ultimate sin that comes from it, that's exactly what's going on. You see, it's after the birth of sin that you end up with a marred reputation. It's after the birth of sin that you end up with a broken marriage. It's after the birth of sin that you have the shattered friendship. It's after that that you have the wounded heart, the relational conflict. And even in some cases, you have a spiritual collapse where people's spiritual life just goes right down into the dust. It's never advertised that way. see, sin, when it grows up, becomes a real killer. Now, the third thing we want to look at is coming to us in verse 16, and that is a warning. This is a warning for me and a warning for you from our brother James. With all of this in mind, he says, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers and sisters. In fact, we could translate this from the original, stop being deceived. Stop being misled. Stop being led astray. You see, our hearts are going to tempt us to wander. And we live in a very interesting culture. We live in a culture that's very feeling oriented. If you feel it, it must be right. I can't tell you how many times I've had somebody in my office, and that's basically what they're saying to me as they're thinking of walking out of their marriage. But you don't understand, God has given me this incredible feeling for this other person, and somehow that legitimizes it. We begin to approve the indulging in something we shouldn't do. We begin to rationalize it all. And what he says... This is, by the way, what I, sell, I, I would say to someone who was telling me that in my office, I would say, stop being deceived. You see, don't be, it's really what he's saying is don't be enticed and allured by the empty promise. Don't be, be drawn away from your safe place of reliance on God and dependence on the Holy Spirit. Stop being deceived, my beloved brethren. So what we've really done today is we've looked at this theological summary of temptation. And that's just the first part of what we want to do as we look at this trip hazard. Next week, we're going to look at some very practical ways on how we can better handle temptation in our everyday life. But if you've been around Wildwood for a while, you know we want to talk about, as we come out of our time, some life application. This is what you really want to write down. This is what you want to be taking away. And I have two ideas in mind. Be alert and be careful. All right? Here's the practical part of what we've looked at today. What do I mean? Well, be alert to the hazard. See, in a weekly, daily hourly basis, each one of us has temptation coming to us. And what ultimately we need to remember is we need to be alert to the hazard. We need to not think, I'm going into another week. I wonder if possibly sometimes once temptation will come my way. Oh, no. Be alert to the hazard. Don't get caught off guard. Because you see, if we're not alert we are highly vulnerable to a trip or a slip. I have a sign in my office. In fact, I have a bunch of little signs in my office, but one of them says this. At any given moment, I am one step away from stupid. Now, why do I have that hanging in my office on my credenza? Because at any given moment, I am one step away from stupid. And I'm trying to be alert to the hazard to be aware, be alert to the hazard, recognize the lures when they come your way. Oh, don't worry about what God says. It'll be fun if you do that. You can get away with it. You're going to escape the consequences. We need to remember that sin becomes a killer So we need to be alert to the hazard, and Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, is available to you and to me 24 hours a day, nonstop, to help us. So the first life application is be alert to the hazard. Second one is this, be careful in programming your mind. Be careful in programming your mind. Victory is won over temptation in the citadel of the mind. That's why it is so important what we watch. It's so important what we read. It's so important what we listen to. It's so important where we surf. It's so important what we're pondering and turning over in our mind. So be careful in programming your mind. You see, you can't keep the birds from flying overhead. (laughs) They're going to come. But you can keep them from nesting in your mind. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again for the word of God. We thank you that it is so real and so practical. And Father, we would pray that you would help every one of us, myself at the front of the line, to be aware of the hazard of temptation that is always seeking to trip us up. We pray that you'll help us to become more alert to this hazard that's always there, that we wouldn't be caught off guard. We would remember that any given moment we're one step away from stupid and help us to to recognize all the lures and to be aware of them. And, And then also, Father, give us some victory as we watch how we program our minds some of us really have to make some changes in what we've been allowing into our head. We can't keep those birds of temptation from flying overhead, but we certainly can keep them from nesting in our mind. And may we do that for the honor and the glory of Jesus Christ because he is a great Savior and a great God. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.